Well, I don't, I don't know what it was like in Williamsburg or Somerset, but I was looking around the room during that song and I, I saw at least five men that I could count in my eye line that sung louder during that song than I believe they did at any point during the service. And I almost saw one hand just go up. I, I, don't, I don't know, it was, like, it was like Father's Day, it was spiritual, it was, uh, it was, it was good, it was good. Hey, we're in part four uh, of our series. We're doing the, this summer called Greatest Hits and uh, Greatest Hits is you you know, uh, almost always those are the songs that we never get tired of listening to, we never get tired of singing, and you know, we just hear them over and over and over again. And the reason we don't tire of them is just because they're just they're just one of those great hits that uh, it, it just they're timeless and they're great. And uh, we pass them usually on to the next generation and what one generation loves, the next generation finds the love for it as well. And in this series, we've heard from Tom Petty, you know, I won't back down. And we talked about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and they refused to back down uh, even in the face of the fiery furnace. And then a couple of weeks ago, Austin uh, up church, he spoke here and Ryan uh, spoke in Williamsburg and they talked about the man in the mirror and talked about James uh, and how important it is not only to hear the word, but to do the word. And it's just not about what our head knows. It's also about what our hands uh, are willing to do with what our heads know. And, and then last week, uh, Sean, uh, Sean Allen talked to us about uh, U2's, I still haven't found what I'm looking for out of Ecclesiastes and discontentment and envy and and how we're always wanting more and more and more, and we're just not satisfied. But today, as you already know, uh, we're talking about another one bites the dust. Uh, what you may not know about this song, and to be honest, uh, I always knew this song, but I didn't know that much about the song, but it spent 15 weeks, 15 weeks at the number one spot in 1980. 15 weeks at number one, and it spent more time in the top 10 that year than any other song that was released in 1980. And, and it's the most arguably, arguably the, the most iconic Queen song of all time, uh, especially here in the States because there was no other Queen song uh, that sold more uh, than Another One Bites the Dust. So Americans, we really, we really love this song more than any other Queen song. Uh, and something else that I didn't know about this song until I was reading about it a few weeks ago, um, it was originally Think about this. I think this would have been totally weird and it would have just messed up the franchise entirely. It was originally slated to be in Sylvester Stallone's Rocky III. Uh, and, and of course, that didn't happen because Survivor's Eye of the Tiger was used instead. And I've tried, ever since I knew that bit of information, I've tried to picture what it would have been like to watch Rocky uh, with another one bites the dust instead of Eye of the Tiger. And I, I, just, I just don't think it would have, would have worked. So somebody, somebody somewhere made a good call. And then also, according to the British Medical Association, uh, this song is one of a handful of songs, which is the perfect song uh, to do CPR to uh, because it's 110 beats per minute. And, and if you can get it in your head, then you, you can figure out the, you know, how quick and how fast uh, you're supposed to do CPR if you're ever in a situation where you need to do that. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff written about this song. Uh, I tried to find out really, you know, what inspired it. And, and there was some reports about that, you know, on one hand, it was inspired by Chicago mobsters during the prohibition period. Uh, it was inspired by Love That Goes Wrong. That's every song. Uh, love Goes Wrong inspires everything. Uh, you got mobsters and Love Gone Wrong. I mean, that's a hit song right there. If you can find a way to bring po Prohibition, Chicago mobsters and Love Gone Wrong into a song, um, I, I think you're probably gonna have a hit. But in the end, if you just take the song for what you might be able to recognize about it, in the end, it's a song about overcoming. It's about overcoming your enemy. It's a song about victory. I remember when I was in high school, I went to Bell County High School and, and over at Middlesbrough High School, uh, at the end of every game they won, they would play another one bites the dust. They didn't have to play it often, but when, whenever they won, whenever they won, uh, don't take that seriously. Creek Church, Middlesbrough. Uh, but they would play another one by Sedus because it's kind of a song about victory. It's kind of a song about overcoming your enemy. It's a song about standing tall. It's, it's, you know, not a, it's about not cowering down or running away. Uh, it, it's about momentum, you know, another one bites the dust, another one bites the dust. It, it's like momentum. It's like you're, you're having win after win after win after win after win. And, and all of these wins, they're just fueling forward momentum. And, and so in the end, I, I think the way I hear the song and you may hear it differently. I think it's a song about momentum and victory. I, I think it's about one win that leads to another win that leads to another win. And all of a sudden you've got momentum and the victories get bigger and the victories, victories get sweeter. 
So this song, I think, uh, I think it sets up well the story that I, I want us to take a look at today. Uh, and the story that we're gonna look at today, certainly, in, in I think any fair uh, listing of the Bible's greatest hits and the Bible's greatest stories, I think today's story ends up on every short list. It, it's a story that most, if not everybody here, uh, you've heard it uh, to one degree or the other. And whether you've not read it in years or read it in forever, uh, you know enough about this story that you could tell the highlights of this story to anybody because it's just so epic, it's just so timeless. And it's the story of David and Goliath. Now I have only done two sermons my entire career on David and Goliath. Uh, one was really early on and, and one was from about five or six years ago. And, and so I've only spoke on this a couple of different times. But today I wanna tell this story in a way that I've never told it before. Matter of fact, I wanna tell this story in a way that I've never actually personally read it before, uh, just except in the last few months. So I'm gonna tell this really familiar story uh, that I think is one of the great stories of the Bible, but I wanna tell it from an angle that I've never told it from before. Uh, I, I've been reading about the life of David personally for, for quite a few months now. Uh, I, I anticipate that sometime in the future, I'll do a series on the life of King David. Uh, my men's group, we have a men's group that meets on Wednesday when, when we're in town and we can get everybody together. And then on Wednesdays, uh, my men's group, we've been going through a book all about the life of David. And, and David, honestly, he's one of my favorite personalities in the Old Testament. He's not my favorite personality you know, of the Bible, but, but he He's such a man of passion and he's such a man of destiny. He's, he's an extraordinary man uh, of a rare blend of qualities. He's, he's a warrior, but yet he's a poet. He, he's tough, but yet he's tender. He's decisive and he's quick with making decisions, but yet he's wise. He's brave, but yet he's humble. He's, he's got skillful enough hands to play stringed instruments, but he's got strong enough hands to kill an enemy. And I think David has been one of the most beloved characters of the scripture, not because there's, there's such great narratives connected to him, but because I do believe that when we think about the life of David, the ups and the downs and the in-betweens, when we look at the life of David, read the life of David, we always find a piece of ourselves in David. We always see a reflection of our own story in his story. Now, here's something you may not know about David. There, there's more chapters written about David in the scripture than any other. Uh, when you think about Abraham, the father of faith, Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham. It begins to become the ark of what the narrative of scripture is all about. But even though as central as Abraham is to our faith uh, and as the father uh, of the Jewish faith, uh, there's only 14 chapters written about Abraham in all of the scripture. Uh, there's 14 written about Joseph and, and what a great story that was. You know, betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery, ends up being promoted to prime minister. Great story, but only 14 for Joseph. Jacob, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. Jacob only has 11 chapters uh, written about him in the scripture. Elijah, I, I mean, one of the great miracle workers of the Old Testament, called down fire out of heaven up on top of Mount Carmel. Uh, only 10 chapters are written about Elijah. But when it comes to David, there are 66 chapters dedicated to telling the story of David. And that's significant and that shouldn't be lost on us. 66 chapters written about David more than any other person. And that doesn't even count the 59 references to David in the New Testament. So when it comes to the story of David and Goliath, the reason that David and Goliath is such an important story is just not because you know, David kills Goliath, and I know, you know, spoiler alert, but you already knew that. Uh, there's, there's no new way to tell this story that doesn't end up with David winning and Goliath losing. There's no surprise ending to this story, so I'm not even gonna try to pretend that we already don't know how the story ends. But when it comes to the story of David and Goliath, it's more than just a shepherd boy who takes down a giant. There's more to this story than that. This is the story that catapulted David from obscurity, relative obscurity, growing up in Judea and in Bethlehem. He goes from obscurity to national stardom, from nobody knowing his name to everybody knowing his name, from nobody knowing him to people writing songs about him overnight. And so David and Goliath is such an integral part of David's story because it's how David became known to the people that one day he would become king over. And it's a great story. 
We love the story of David and Goliath. It's the story of an underrated underdog up against a franchise champion. I mean, a franchise player up against an underrated underdog who's a nobody. And so of course, we're gonna pull for the underdog. We love the underdog story. We still love it. We love it in football, we love it in basketball. We love it in life. We just love the story of the underdog. And it is the quintessential story of the underdog up against the giant, up against Goliath. It's such a favorite story that even in our culture, David and Goliath is a metaphor. It's a metaphor in business. It's a metaphor in life. You know, David up against Goliath. It's unthinkable. It's impossible. You know, the odds are not in your favor, but yet you face down a giant that somehow you're able to take down. And it's a great story. And we all love the story for good reason. But I think, I, I really have, I, I've, I've read this from 12 different perspectives over the last few months. And, and I've, I've turned it upside down. I've stood on one foot. I've stood on the other foot. I've tried, I've tried to read broadly about it. I've tried to read deeply about it. And I really have, I've come to a very different perspective about this entire story, uh, a very different conclusion, uh, not in how the story ends, but, but really part of the wonder of the story that the, that the narrative is, is actually telling and a narrative that you and I can find incredibly relevant and incredibly helpful because I believe that there's a story being told between the lines of the story that's actually being told. And the beginning of this story that I'm gonna tell us this morning, it isn't always explicit in the text, but I do believe it's always implicit in the text. And not only the primary text that we're gonna be looking at in 1 Samuel in just a moment, but in multiple texts, a couple of which I will show you in just a moment. So to start the story, to make sure we're all, you know, within the same, in the same, uh, you know, bounds and of understanding and context, let's just start the story here. The story begins with Saul becoming king of Israel. He's the first king of Israel and he gets crowned king of Israel in 1050 BC. Uh, the nation of Israel, they looked at all the other nations and they said, you know what, they have a king, we need a king. And besides that, there wasn't a central leader. And as the book of Judges ends, uh, the author of Judges says that in those days, there was no king in the land of Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eye. So everybody recognized that there needed to be a leader because there always has to be a leader. Any company, organization, community, church that doesn't have a leader, it just doesn't go well. You gotta have a leader. And the people recognize we need a leader. We needed a king, we need a king. And so they chose Saul. And the way that they chose Saul was because he was tall, dark, and handsome. He, he, he was tall, he had good looks, he had charisma. And when he was in the room, I mean, he had presence about him. And they said, well, this guy, look at him. Look at how he looks, look at how he stands. Look at his personality. Of course, he's gonna be a great king. So let's just make him king. They really didn't care who God wanted to be king, um, but they called him his king. And Samuel, the prophet, uh, he was the person who came up to Saul and said, okay, the people have spoken and God's given me permission and you're gonna become the first king over a people who've never had a king. Now, I don't know if you thought about it recently, but to try to be a king when you've never been a king before over a people who've never had a king before, that's difficult because you have to learn how to be a king and they have to learn how to live with a king. So it's not an easy job that Saul you know, was handed. And, and so we should cut the guy some slack, but he made two major decisions that were bad that ultimately caused God to strip away the kingdom from him. And that's good reading, but I don't have time to tell that story today. So God decides that he's gonna take the kingdom away from Saul. And then we're, we're kind of reintroduced to Samuel the prophet who, who has the ear of God in those days. He's got the trust of the people. And Saul is messed up, he's screwed up, and Samuel's all torn up about it. Samuel's mourning and weeping and feeling sorry about the whole matter. And finally, God comes to Samuel and says, hey, how long are you gonna mourn and cry over Saul? It's time to get up and move on. It's time to get up, it's time to move on. It's time to get up and it's time to move on. To which, just time out, just as a way of parentheses. That's just good advice in general. Some of you have been mourning for so long about this or about that, it's time to move up and it's time to move on. 
Somebody let you down, somebody disappointed you, somebody didn't show up, somebody didn't call, somebody didn't rise to your level of expectation. You know, and Saul, he, 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 was, he was so tall, dark and handsome, he was gonna be great. And even Samuel began to believe the pipe dream. And all of a sudden, you know, Saul, he let Samuel down. And all of a sudden now, because Saul has failed, Samuel thinks everything has failed. And, and God says, listen, my work is bigger than that guy. My plan is bigger than that guy. So get up and move on. I want you to go to Bethlehem. Samuel, go to Bethlehem. And when you go to Bethlehem, I want you to go to the house of this guy by the name of Jesse. And I want you to tell Jesse to bring his sons and you're gonna offer a sacrifice and they're gonna participate. And I want you to put them through a purification ritual. So everybody's gonna, they're gonna wash off with water and you're gonna have a little ceremony. And at that ceremony, I'm gonna reveal to you which one of Jesse's sons is going to be the future king of Israel. Now, Samuel does exactly what God tells him to do. He gets up, he goes to Bethlehem, he fills his flask with oil, and he gets a sacrifice and he heads off. Now, what happens next? What happens next begins to write for us, I think, the story between the lines. Now, I'm gonna tell you I could be wrong, but I'll also tell you I don't think I'm wrong. But I'm not gonna tell you that I'm 100% of what I'm saying absolutely happen, but I think that there's good reason to think that it did happen. But the good news is, no matter whether I'm right or wrong, it doesn't change any of the story. It just adds an extra layer of value to the story. It gives us an extra layer of the story to consider. So what happens next, I believe, is the beginning of a story within the story. And there's some things in this storyline that the author doesn't point out directly, but will let us see indirectly. And there's some things about this overall story that as the author is telling this story to us, he doesn't remind us of some things that we should be reminded of. So as we go through this story, I'm gonna do my best to go back and remind us some things of, of some past things that the author doesn't remind us in the present part of the story. So David's father is a guy by the name of Jesse. Everybody say Jesse. Jesse, okay. David's father was a guy by the name of Jesse. He, he was pretty respected in his community. Uh, the Jewish tradition says that, that he was a respected teacher of the Torah, a respected teacher uh, of, of the law, that, that he was serious about the law of God. And so he was respected in his community all throughout Bethlehem in the region of Judea. Now, the thing about Jesse is, Jesse, just like your family and just like my family, uh, there are some things in Jesse's family which are very eye-raising. There, there's some things really interesting about his family history. History. It's interesting at best, it's scandalous at worst. It's interesting at best, it's scandalous at its very worst. Now, David's great-great-grandmother, which would mean it's Jesse's great-grandmother. Jesse's great-grandmother was a prostitute from Jericho by the name of Rahab. Now, when I think of my granny, I think, I think of my mom's mom, Geneva, who can make some of the greatest gravy and biscuits that you've ever had. I mean, biscuits which were so big, they, they would double as softballs. I, I mean, it was just incredible. She made some of the best breakfast. It was just amazing. I, I think about her and I think about my dad's mom, Dolores, and she's still living. And I think about all the times she made me cream of wheat growing up and all the dinners and all the breakfasts and all the desserts and just all the things. And, and I just think about my sweet, you know, granny. I think about my grandmother. I don't know what it would be like, and I don't know, maybe you know. I don't know what it'd be like when somebody said, tell me about your granny. Granny was a hooker. Uh, granny, 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 granny walked the streets of Jericho. That's what granny did. I mean, she made a pretty good living. I mean, she was quite a looker in demand in the day. Uh, and it's like, I don't even know. So you could imagine that that's not gonna be something you lead off with at the dinner party. Hey, tell me about your grandmother so I can tell you about mine. Uh, you know, you're not gonna do that. It, it, it's just not the way we're wired. So, you know, Jesse's great-grandmother and David's great-great-grandmother was a prostitute from Jericho by the name of Rahab. And there's a great story about it in the book of Joshua. And, and there's the story of these spies and she protected them and they promised her that when they invaded the city that they would protect her and everybody that was behind the scarlet thread. Great story. Well, eventually Rahab marries in to the Jewish nation. She gets married. She falls in love with a Jewish guy, you know, leaves behind the streets of Jericho and becomes part 
uh, of the nation of Israel. Now, that's David's great-great-grandmother. That's Jesse's great-grandmother. Now, his grandmother, Jesse's grandmother, uh, she was was equally, you know, uh, controversial. Uh, you skip down about a generation and, and his grandmother was, was a Moabite woman by the name of Ruth. Uh, and she fell in love with a Jewish guy by the name of Boaz, a wealthy landowner. And so you've got the love story of Booth and uh, Boaz and Ruth. And so, but the thing about Ruth, and let me, let me just tune in for just a moment because it's a little bit of, you know, a lot of information, but it's really important to the story. Ruth was not Jewish, she was a Moabite. And what you don't know about the Moabites, the Moabites go all the way back, go all the way back to an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And because of that incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters, you had Moab that was born. And from Moab came the Moabites, a people that were just known as descendants of incest. So now you've got this Ruth gal who's not Jewish that marries a Jewish guy by the name of Boaz when there's already a hooker from Jericho in the family. And it's, it's like, what is going on with these people? And it's, it's like not the family tree that you're exactly proud of. Now, According to Jewish tradition, uh, Boaz, he passed away a couple of nights after he and Ruth were married. Uh, But they had time to consummate the marriage and apparently consummate it to the point that she became pregnant. And and Boaz uh, became the father of Obed. And so Obed, Boaz and Ruth was his mom and dad. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Now you got all that, so you'll not forget who came from Jericho, that's Rahab, the Moabite Ruth who descended from incest, you got all that. So this is the house that Samuel's heading to. This is a, this is a family with a story. This is a family with a past. This is a family that has got people talking, who's had people talking. I mean, there's been a lot of scandal associated with this family and, and, and Jesse has done his best to, to try to be respectable in this community to try to kind of gain back the family name. We want the respect of the people. And so he has, he's won that respect and, and people revere him. And so Samuel's going to his house to anoint the next king. And so when he shows up, there's Jesse and he's got his son, sons. And the first son that walks in, Eliab, who's the oldest, uh, Samuel looks at this oldest son of Jesse and says, wow, this has gotta be the king. Look at this guy. I mean, he looks amazing. I mean, <laughs> he's gonna be a great king. But then it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them, Samuel. People judge, and we do. We judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We, we, want, we love to believe that we can tell who someone is by the way they look. We love to believe that we can size somebody up because of how they're dressed or how they handle themselves. We like to think that because the way someone looks, we can know something about their heart, that we can know something about their motive. We love to think that we can, but we're not very good at that. And so we misjudge each other all the time because we're just judging by what we can see. But God says, I don't judge by what you can see. I judge by what only I can see. And I judge based on the heart. And God's around and saying, not everything that glitters is gold. Not everything that looks great is great. Don't confuse someone's gift with them having substance. Don't confuse somebody just because they have intelligence. It doesn't mean they have depth. Just because somebody has competency, it doesn't mean that they have character. God looks deeper, his standards are higher. And he just doesn't look at actions, but he looks at the motives behind the action. He, he wants to know what the true north of our hearts are. He wants to know what direction is our hearts really, are our hearts really leaning in. That's what he wants to know. So Jesse, he brings in some other sons and another son and another son and another son. And none of them appear to be the one that God wants to anoint the next king of Israel. And Samuel's a bit perplexed. He's thinking to himself, I know God told me to come here. I know God wants me to be here. But none of these sons seem to be the guy. And so the only thing he knows to do is he he turns and it says, then Samuel asked, Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Now, I want you to think of this as a dad. I want you to think of this as a parent or as a grandparent. 
the prophet of God, the man who has the ear of God in the land, he has told you ahead of time that he wants to do a special ceremony with you as the father, with all of your sons, because God has told him to come to your house for special business. I want you to think about that. Are these all the sons you have? And then Jesse, I can only imagine like, well, there is still the youngest. There's still the youngest, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Why is he out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats? Jesse is in a pinch. Jesse's got more people than this on the payroll. He doesn't have to have David out in the field, but he has chosen to have David out in the field. And for whatever reason, whether we can know all the reasons or not, he chose, he made a conscious, deliberate decision not to have his youngest son at that event. And we should all just say, why? Because I don't think that's what I would do. And I don't think that's probably what you would do. If I have someone that's really important that has asked for a meeting and they wanna meet my sons, I'm gonna bring both my sons. I'm gonna bring all my kids that I can bring. Why would I leave somebody out? And that's why there seems to be something else going on here than just this shallow story that keeps building and building and building to David and Goliath. Why would you not have your son there? At minimal, at minimal, Jesse doesn't consider David enough to have him there. He, he doesn't consider, you know, the potential of David's future. He, he doesn't consider David smart enough, good enough. Uh, he, he doesn't consider David important enough. At minimal, he's discounted David in some way. I don't know if any of you guys or any of you dads or any of you fathers have ever felt that way about your father, but if you've ever felt like your father didn't believe in you, if you ever felt like your father didn't believe you could, if you never felt like your father believed in a future that could be better than his own, if you never had a father that cheered you on or clapped for you, if you never had a father that invited you to great things and greater places, then you kind of understand a little bit of what this would be like if you've been there. You know the sting of that. And, and, and David's not even been told about this event. So there's something that's seemingly unhealthy going on in this family. And we see this repetitively throughout the Old Testament of this favoritism that exists, you know, in families among parents towards certain kids. And, and when that favoritism gets out of control, then it upsets the entire family and there's a fracture in the family and the fracture ends up usually being generational and it spills over into the children of those sons and daughters and to the grandchildren of those sons and daughters. And, and it's just a fracture to the family. So there's some unhealthy things going on here. And that's the reason whenever there's unhealthy dynamics in our family, it is best to deal with them in this generation because if not, they'll spill over into future generations. And the fracture and the rift will continue for years to come. There's distance in between Jesse, these brothers and David, there's, there's a tension there. There seems to be some anger and some resentment. There seems to be some division, perhaps some jealousy there. There's some stuff going on. We can read the text and just know there's something going on here. And so Samuel says, send for him at once. We're not gonna sit down and eat until he arrives. Samuel's like, I, I'm not going anywhere and we're not doing anything until you bring all your sons here. So Jesse sent for him. And then David walks in and it says, he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said to Samuel, this is the one anoint him. This is the moment that Samuel walks up to David and he pours the oil over his head. And as Josephus tells about in his historical writings that Samuel whispered into the ear of David and said, you are going to be the next king of Israel. And this is the moment that begins to set the stage for the narrative of David and Goliath because David is a shepherd that nobody knows that's gonna face a giant that nobody wants to face. And at the end of that showdown, everybody's gonna know David's name. And so the author is telling an incredible story, a masterful story, but there's more to this story than what the author is pointing out explicitly. There's more to it than just the battle that's gonna take place in the next chapter. Now, 
We've been already given some clues about what's going on. There's some clues that have already been given to us. You know, David's left out, he's not invited. Uh, David isn't with the family. Uh, Jesse doesn't initially consider him, you know, worthy of an invite. There seems to be a rift of some kind and whenever there's a rift, there's pain and wherever there's some pain, there's usually anger. Now here's what scholars, a lot of scholars believe. Not all scholars, but a lot of scholars believe. And this is, this is what is pretty predominant among the Jewish tradition of how they read the Old Testament text and how they process this story. There's a passage after David and Bathsheba, after the episode with David and Bathsheba, where he writes one of the penitent Psalms. And in Psalm 51, David makes a statement that we've heard probably dozens and dozens of times, but we've never really thought about it in this context. But David in Psalm 51, this is what he said in his prayer. He said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, we've always you know, typically heard that read in the broader reading that, that David was like every other person, that he was born a sinner and, and we're all born sinners. And perhaps there certainly is a broader application to what David says there, but perhaps what David said is what David meant to say. And it's just not meant to be broad, you know, read broadly, that it's meant to be broad, read specifically. And David, if it's meant to be read specifically, David is saying, that either in an act of sin on the part of Jesse stepping outside the marriage and getting another woman pregnant or that his mother stepped outside of the marriage and got pregnant by another man, that either one is plausible. And among the Jewish tradition, uh, that's really how they interpret the text, that David is basically telling you a little bit of his life story, that he was brought into the world because his mom stepped out of line or his dad stepped out of line, that that's how he got into the world. And that it is this, it was this event of how David was conceived. It was this event that fueled the dysfunction and the division and the resentment between David, his brothers, and his father. Now, there, there's another set of Psalms. Uh, it's Psalms 69. And, and in Psalm 69, a lot, a lot of people believe that this is a Psalm all about David's childhood, about David's life growing up. And I just want you to hear these words because I promise you, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on David and Goliath because you already know how it ends. I just want you to think about this ahead of time. Listen to what David said in Psalm 69, perhaps, about his childhood, and I do, actually, I've read, I've read this, I've studied this, I, I do think this is what David's talking about. Listen to what he says in Psalm 69. He says, save me, O God. Listen to the, listen to the emotions that, that are coming out of David's childhood. Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. And you can understand the language of what he's saying. God, this is all around me. I can't get away from this. This is, just, this is about to overtake me. This is, this is almost suffocating. Deeper and deeper, I sink into the mire. It's like I can't get free. My foot is stuck in the mud and I cannot get free. And the water keeps growing higher and higher and higher. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water and the floods, they overwhelm me. They overwhelm me. And if David's childhood was unsettled, if there was division and animosity in his family, we can certainly understand why he felt this way. He says, I'm exhausted from crying for help. I've cried, I've prayed, I've cried and I've prayed, but nothing seems to change. No help seems to come. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. Those who hate me without cause outnumber the hairs of my head. Obviously, you know, a hyperbole, an overstatement. Many enemies try to destroy me with lies, demanding that I give back what I didn't steal. He says, I'm hated without a cause. Even my family members have become more like enemies than friends, he'll tell us. He says, I'm falsely accused constantly for things that I'm not guilty of. He says, for I endure insults for your sake, humiliation is written all over my face. And what if he just means that literally? What if he doesn't look like the parent that he's supposed to look like? What if every time that one of his parents, his mother, his father, his brothers look into his face, they see the reflection of somebody they don't wanna see the reflection of? Humiliation is all over my face. Even my own brothers, even my own brothers pretend they don't know me. 
They treat me like a stranger. So there's this division. They hate me. They treat me as though I'm a stranger. And, and, and many make the case that, that this is a word which could also be translated, they treat me like a bastard. They treat me as one who doesn't belong to the family. That I'm not truly a part of this family. Passion for your house has consumed me. And the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. When I weep and fast, they scoff at me. When I dress in burlap to show sorrow, they make fun of me. I am the favorite topic of town gossip. The town chatters about me. And all the drunks sing about me. They got their little comments that they say to me when I go in and out of the city gates, going out to take care of my father's sheep. David says, but I keep praying to you, Lord, hoping this time you will show me favor. In your unfailing love, oh God, answer my prayer with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mud. Don't let me sink any deeper. Save me from those who hate me and pull me from these deep waters. You know of my shame, my, my scorn, my disgrace. You see all that my enemies are doing. Their insults have broken my heart. I'm in despair. And if only one person, never felt like that? If only one person would show some pity, if only one person would care. David says, I don't feel like I've got anybody in my corner, not even my family. He's broken, he's shamed, he's disgraced. He's got things that have been thrust upon him, forced upon him that he didn't want, he didn't invite, and he's trying to work himself through those issues with a bunch of people who have aligned themselves against him. And when you're trying to fight through some stuff, it's hard to fight through some stuff when you feel like nobody's in your corner. And he said, I'm trying to get through all of this, but nobody's in my corner. If only one, if only one would turn and comfort me. But instead they give me poison for food. They offer me sour wine for thirst. Let the bountiful table set before them become a snare and their prosperity become a trap. But in the context of what he's talking about, it very much sounds like that he was, he was banished to a different table within his own house. And when he was fed, they messed with his food and they messed with his drink. And then everybody else got to sit at the family table while David perhaps wasn't invited to the family table at all. And he says, I'm suffering. I'm suffering in pain. Rescue me, O God, by your saving power for the Lord hears the cries of the needy. He does not despise his imprisoned people. David says, I feel imprisoned by all of this. I can't, I can't escape these circumstances. I can't escape the people that have turned against me. And perhaps he even felt like a prisoner in his own home and his own family. And if this is the pain of David's early life, if this is the pain that's connected to his family dynamic, you know what you could call that? I'll, I'll, I'll be right there. You know what you call that? You call that baggage. His early life was all about accumulating baggage. Baggage, 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 baggage. You know what we read in Psalm 69? It is a Psalm full of emotional and psychological and experiential baggage. Now, the reason that we should be able to see a little bit of ourselves in the story of David is because all of us, we have baggage. You have baggage, I have baggage, we all have baggage. And those of us who are Christians, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we too have baggage. Uh, you probably, like me, you know a lot of Jesus followers that are theologically functional, but at the same time, they're emotionally, relationally, and psychologically dysfunctional. It's like they know what to believe, but it doesn't equate to any other part of their life. The relationships are broken, emotions are broken, the ability to relate and connect on any deeper level, it's somehow miswired, it's broken, it's not there. And, and we're all carrying some baggage around. Some of us are past our weight limit when it comes to baggage. Some of us have really small bags, but don't let the small bags confuse you. You can pack a lot of heavy things in a small bag. We all got baggage. David had baggage. He was marked. 
He was marked by his family. He was marked by his dad. He was marked by his mother. We're not even told her name. You can read about her in Jewish tradition, but we're not even told her name in the scriptures. He's marked by his brothers. We've all been marked by our families. Sometimes more than we want to admit, almost always more than we realize. You ever thought about when you go to a counselor and everybody ought to have a counselor? The first place that a counselor starts is tell me about your biological family. Because you know where the crazy usually begins? With our biological families. That's where the baggage starts. That's where the issues start. Now you may be hearing, you, 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 grew up, you grew up among the roses and in the midst of the tulips and that is great and that is grand and that is wonderful. Thank God for that, but that's not everybody. And it wasn't David. Our, our families have the capacity to load us down with blessing or to load us down with baggage. That, that's what families have the capacity to do. It's the most powerful group that we'll ever be a part of, our families. And that's either good news for some of us or it is very troubling news for some of us. Many of us are born into families where we're handed a script. And it's a script of expectations. It's a script of what was done before you and what they expect you to do and what will happen after you of all of these repeating storylines within the family. Dysfunction in one generation is handed off to become generational dysfunction in the next. And so David, David had some baggage. There was some dysfunction. There were some problems with emotional connection in that family. There were some challenges when it came to relational health in that family. There was some neglect. There was some resentment. There was all of that. And it had become baggage. We've all got it. Don't lose sight of it. And this is where the story ends. So, the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. This is the story we all know, but I want you to see it differently. Then Goliath, a Philistine, a champion from Gath came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore a bronze leg armor and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was heavy and as thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying his shield. So we're talking about a big dude, nine and a half feet tall, probably 400, you know, four or 500 pounds, carrying 200 pounds of armor and a 15 pound spear. He's a conventional killing machine. He's confident, he's intimidating, he should be. It says, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. And then he says this, choose one man, choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then I will be and we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. And when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. It was representative warfare common in those days. We're gonna get a guy, you're gonna get a guy and the winner is the winner for all of his people. And the loser is the loser for all of their people. And Goliath said, just send me one man. But the problem was there wasn't one man among the Israelites that were willing to fight the Philistine. And it says for 40 days, Every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. And he came out and he taunted them and he intimidated them. And that's how giants work. They're relentless. They keep taunting, they keep insulting, they keep condemning. It's a voice that never goes away. It's the giant of fear or insecurity or shame or guilt or regret or discouragement or worry. And it just hammers at you every morning. It hammers at you every evening. It challenges you, it taunts you, it insults you, it condemns you. That's the way giants work. And it was also intimidating and paralyzing for the Israelites. Meanwhile, 15 miles away, in Bethlehem, Jesse looks at David, calls him in from the sheep field and says, I got some supplies I want you to take to your brothers because we need to make sure your brothers got everything that they need. So David loads up and he heads out 
And when he gets there, when David gets there, it says, as he was talking with them, as David was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. And as soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. They had heard this 40 times, morning and evening. This is the first time David had ever heard it. David heard the same thing they heard, saw the same thing they saw, but responded entirely different. David asked the soldiers, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? Why are we sitting by and doing nothing? And what does somebody get if they take this guy out? And they were like, well, you, you get a monetary reward. Your family gets exempt from taxes and Saul's gonna give you his daughter to marry. And if you know the rest of the story, that's not a prize. And, and, and so it's like you get Saul's daughter and, but I want you to look what happens. And this, this is where it, where, it, where it ends. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. Tell me there's not something going on here. He was angry. What are you doing around here anyway? He demanded David to give an answer. And then he says, what about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? Such a big job. You know, you got that few little sheep that he had to find a place for you. You're supposed to be taking care of them. I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle or some, some translators say it could also say that you just want to be seen at the battle. There's something going on in this family. There, there, are, there is some, there's some baggage. So he tries to embarrass David. He tries to accuse him. You're just here because you want to be seen, because you want to be heard. And just as a reminder, anytime you decide to do something great, anytime you decide to accomplish something big, there will be people who will misunderstand you and misrepresent you. That will be the price of you wanting to do something great and of you wanting to do something big. You will be misrepresented. You'll be mischaracterized. Your motives will be questioned. Anytime you want to do something big, and that's what they were doing to David. And David says, what have I done now? As if I've heard this a million times. I was only asking a question. David tells Saul, you need to let me go face Goliath. I'm gonna take him out. <laughs> and Saul says, no, no, you can't. You're too young, you're too little, he's too big, he's too experienced. And, and David, David just kept persisting. He kept telling Saul, he says, listen, David persisted. I, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. When a lion or a bear comes to steal them, Listen, when a bear or lion tries to steal the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by its jaw, I club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. And Saul finally consented and said, may the Lord be with you. May the Lord's favor shine upon you because you're about to go dark. And you know the story. He goes out with a sling and a stone. And he puts a stone between the eyes of Goliath and the giant falls. And the author says, so David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone for he had no sword. David goes out with no sword, just a sling and a stone. It's a great story. I don't even think it's the best part of the story. Not anymore. This wasn't the first time David took down a giant. This wasn't the battle of David's life. Yeah, sure he'd fought a bear and a lion, but somewhere along the way, he battled his baggage. And perhaps the biggest giant that David ever faced that David was ever able to move past was the giant that resided in the baggage. The one that taunted him morning and night, morning and night 
David was able to get to a place in his life where he was able to hold on to the victories more than he was the defeats and the disappointments of his past. David was able to get to the point where he did not shrink to the size of his enemies, but he took a higher road. He took a better path. He moved past his past. And on some way, as best as he can, as best as any of us can, he dealt with some of the biological and relational baggage that started back there in Bethlehem on the hills of Judea. He became his own man. He became a man after God's own heart. He got to a place where he wanted more and he wanted different, even if it meant breaking ranks with the generational storylines of his father and his brothers. This is what I think we can learn. Dads, moms, all of us. I'll give these to you. Not gonna elaborate on them because they speak for themselves. I think we learn from the story of David. What defines you, controls you. If your baggage defines you, it's gonna control you. If what your dad did or didn't do defines you, it'll control you. If the family you grew up in, good, bad, or ugly, if it defines you, it controls you. Whatever defines you, whatever defines me, it controls me. What you leave, what I leave unresolved, will leave you and leave me unhealthy. If there's some stuff we're packing around that's unresolved, we've not been able to fight through it, fight with it, get beyond it, put it to bed, put it to rest, move on. If it's unresolved, we're unhealthy. We're forfeiting health because it remains unresolved. And I think David, I think he teaches us that we shouldn't allow our past to determine our future. And then finally, dads, here on Father's Day, this is for me, this is for you. Dads, don't be the part of your kid's story they have to overcome. Let's not do that. Let's not be that man. Let's not be the dad that our kids have to overcome one day. Frederick Douglass says it's easier to build strong children than it is to repair broken men and women when they're adults. Let's not be the source of pain or neglect. Let's don't, let's don't permit a lack of emotional connection or spiritual connection. Let's pray with our kids. Let's cast vision for the future over our kids' lives. Let's have fun and laugh. Let's make memories. Let's lead by both our words and our examples. Let's not be the dad that one day our kids have to fight to overcome. Let's not become baggage. Let's be a blessing. Father, I pray for all of us. Let us receive what we need to receive. Learn what we need to learn. Apply what we need to apply. And Father, remind us that it may not be the Goliath, which is our greatest battle. It may be the baggage that some of us are still carrying around, which may be the battle of our lives. But thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for an empty tomb where we can bury our baggage, that we can trust it to you and we can move on with the hope of better. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.